Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer and Special Guest Stephen Peters, Investment Trust Analyst at Charles Stanley. Now you're probably familiar with emerging markets and all the risks and opportunities that come with these, but you might not be so well acquainted with frontier markets. These underdeveloped markets also offer the potential for growth, and in some cases better than that which emerging markets offer, so not surprisingly, some investors are turning to this area. Emma, you've been assessing the potential of frontier markets, so first of all, what exactly are they and how do they compare to emerging markets? Well, as you say, Leonora, the main difference is that they are less well-developed markets and economies. So they are still considered emerging markets, but because they are substantially less um, advanced than you know emerging markets like, you'd say, China um, and other countries like that, um, we call them frontier markets. So as well as having smaller economies, they also have smaller stock markets, less well-developed and tra- trade as much on them. Okay. Now, they offer opportunities for growth um, and in some cases higher than emerging markets. Um, why Why are they so growthy? What's, what's the potential there? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a number, number of reasons. I mean, many of these countries tend to be sort of resource rich and they've also got great demographics in, in the fact that they tend to have young populations and, you know, dynamic um, young people who want to get on. So if if the country is, you know, investment is coming into the country and there is employment opportunities, that's going to sort of drive growth. And then also just the fact that they're starting from a much um, less well-developed point, that means that they've got a lot further to grow um, and, and well, a lot further to go, but also a lot further to grow. So if investors get in um, at that early point, mm-hmm. they can sort of take part in the journey that from, you know, less well-developed country to hopefully developed, um, fully-fledged developed economy in, in the years to come. Okay, so starting from a much lower base in emerging markets. Mm. And so what will be some examples of frontier markets? Um, well, you know, these these countries are, are scattered all the way around the globe, really. So you've got, um, you know, markets in Eastern Europe, for example. Um, those are considered frontier markets. And you've also got markets in, in South America, in Africa and in Asia. So really, you know, you can take your pick in terms of um, regions, most regions will have some very um, less well-developed countries which are considered frontier markets. Which countries? Say, for example, um, Nigeria is is one sort of big um, frontier market that's been talked about a lot, um, obviously in Africa. And then we've got places like um, Vietnam, which is which is a, a big um, market that's... that's in, Lots of people are getting excited about because they've got a very big population, young population, quite well educated. So there's there's lots of pluses in that area. Um, Argentina is another um, market that that investors are are very interested in. And so, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Okay. Now, it all sounds good. But um, where you get um, high growth potential, you tend to get um, some uh, high risks as well. Yes, so what definitely. Are the, what are the downsides? Um, the risks? Well, as you as you point out, Leonora, mm. there's there's a number. I mean, as 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 well as the fact that you are just investing in a less well developed economy, um, there's lots of sort of issues with. I mean, infrastructure. Like um, there's also issues in terms of political risks. 
um, some of these countries are, you know, not particularly democratic. Um, problems of corruption, some of them. Um, less well-developed legal systems. These are all problems that could affect investors. And there's also the issue of um, currency, currency risks. So um, many of these countries have volatile currencies, and if if it if their currency weakens substantially, then any sort of gain that you might have got. Um, from from returns is is effectively lost. So there's there's a number of things to consider. Okay, but I suppose similar to the risks you get in emerging markets. And, yeah, but yeah. I suppose I mean the other thing with frontier markets is that they because they have less um, well developed stock markets, it might be harder to kind of um, to exit. You right. sell your holdings, okay. and emerging markets are much more traded. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's okay. harder to get into and also out mm. of frontier markets. Okay. Now, um, bearing all that in mind, what kind of investors are frontier markets suitable for? And um, these investors, what percentage of their portfolios could you consider committing to the region? Um, well, obviously, this is about as high risk as you can get. So um, it's got to be for investors who have a long-term focus, mm-hmm. at least five years, preferably 10 years or more. Um, and people who are able to to stomach high risk, um, so yeah, very high risk sort of um, focused investors. And the, the analyst that we spoke to suggested that you know it, it needs to be a very small part of your portfolio for the reasons that it is quite a risky area. So under five percent is what I suggest. Okay. Now, if you don't have a high enough risk appetite to put your money into um, a dedicated frontier markets funds, are there sort of other ways where maybe you could get a bit of exposure? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, and that's that's definitely a valid point. Um, if you don't want to sort of stomach the risk, I mean, for example, you could. You know, consider just investing in in some global emerging markets funds because frontier markets are sort of included in emerging market funds. I mean, some funds will mm. still have benchmark. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, you can look at, at, at yeah. whether that's the case in, in those funds. That's a way of doing it. Um, and then there's also you can also sort of invest directly in in companies that are themselves investing in in these regions. Okay. So, for example, um, you know, companies that are um, investing in Vietnam or building hmm. factories, or maybe you know, listed exactly. in the UK, or listed something, in the UK, yeah. Or, but yeah, involved in the frontier markets. Okay. Exactly, that's that's another way yeah. to do it. Now, Stephen, what are your thoughts on investing in frontier markets funds? I'd agree with a lot of uh, what's been said already. I'd make a couple of points as well, which I think are often overlooked. And one is that a lot of these frontier market companies that you'll see in uh, some of the bigger, more well-known funds and trusts are often come out of state-owned they usually have to be state-owned and a lot of them are aware that outside investors have concerns over corporate governance that uh, comes with investing in frontier markets so what you often find which people overlook is that some of them do pay quite interesting dividend yields so we're going to talk about maybe a couple of the trusts in your article or a couple of funds and trusts in your article but so blackrock frontier markets the investment trust that has a dividend yield of three three and a half percent which is not what you would expect from what is a high growth mm-hmm. um, investment uh, class or asset class i would agree that it's risky you can mitigate that risk in a couple of ways you can own a small part of it you you take for argument's sake whatever you're prepared to invest in emerging markets within your portfolio take away 20 percent of that say and invest it uh, in, a, in a small way in frontier markets 
I'd also uh, point out for those listeners who uh, do buy investment trusts that uh, there are are a couple of frontier market investment trusts. The discounts on those do uh, wax and wane a little bit and you can enhance your returns, mitigate your risk by buying those trusts when they're trading at uh, wider discounts to asset value. You mentioned um, BlackRock, Frontier Markets um, Investment Trust. Are there any other funds that you would um, mention for um, getting exposure to this area? I very much prefer closed-ended funds for illiquid asset classes such as this. Um, Investment trusts have their strengths. Um, They're not brilliant in all asset classes and in all uh, asset types, but in illiquid equity portfolios they are excellent because there's a fixed pool of capital that the manager can invest and he's he or she in, in the case of these trusts there's a he and a she running this this uh, vehicle um they don't have to worry about the money coming in and out the flows the sentiment waxes and wanes as somebody reads an article oh i'm going to invest in some of that and then you know asset flows rush in and then equally when sentiment falls money flies out so closed-ended vehicle very very um uh, useful tool for that. There's two investment trusts, really, uh, the BlackRock Frontier Markets Trust and one that um, is now titled, it's run by a, a small company within Aberdeen Asset Management. That is more of a fund of funds. Mm. Um, and uh, fund of funds typically come with more expenses. They're more is that the advance? What was formerly yeah. known as advance. Yeah, what's yeah. it called now? Um, well, it's Aberdeen uh, something. I can't remember exactly <laughs> okay. what its name is. Probably Frontier Markets. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, um, almost certainly. Yeah. Um, but um, as you can tell, I don't really mm. follow it because mm. it is a fund of funds. Yeah. This is a long-term asset class. Fees are important. Mm. Whilst the BlackRock fee uh, fund is not the most, uh, you know, good value, it's not the most, it's not cheapest in the headline cost. I think it's the better vehicle. It's directly into frontier markets equities within a closed-ended structure. Okay, and you can see some more fun suggestions in Emma's article uh, if you think you're brave enough to explore the final frontier. Now, IC Top 100 fund Bailey Giffordson Nippon may in theory focus on the extreme opposite to what we've been discussing, Japan, a developed market. But its recently appointed manager is very interested in under-the-radar small companies which he says have a lot of development and growth potential. Kate, you recently met with Bailey Giffordson Nippon's manager, Praveen Kumar. So can you explain what these companies are that he argues will help this investment trust to continue delivering its strong returns? Yeah, um, well, he basically divided Japan into old Japan and new Japan. And we're saying that old Japan are, are the kind of companies that we maybe think of as being quite slow, kind of lumbering giants of companies and he's saying there's now a new wave of entrepreneurialism coming to the country um, and there's this this kind of new generation of young disruptive stocks which are really exciting um, and which you probably wouldn't have heard of but are tapped into some of these big global trends like driverless cars and the internet of things all of those kind of aspects and actually the the trust has been delivering amazing returns kind of making the most of those trends already and there seems that there's some quite exciting potential in small caps over there now is some um, investing in that kind of thing is that is that a new direction for the trust it's kind of a continuation of what the trust was doing before but obviously has, he has just taken over and he's quite keen to keep pushing that and particularly on the area of healthcare. Um, wants to really build that out for disruptive healthcare stocks is a particular area of interest for him. But no, this is a theme that the, that the trust has been using for a while. 
Some of the companies um, that they had for a while have actually got rather large. Can we say that Bailey Giffordson Nippon is still a smaller company's fund? Well, I did ask this because obviously they're talking about, or he was talking about these stocks that have you know appreciated um, kind of double digits uh, or appreciated a lot. Was that mono, mon, monotaro? monotaro? Yeah, for example. Um, so yeah, the obvious question is are you now just holding a load of large stocks? And in fact, no, he isn't. And the trust is still majority held in topics, small companies. But some of them have grown a little larger. He says his sell discipline isn't to, he doesn't sell when stocks reach a certain market cap. It's all about how much growth potential stocks have. I mean, if you look at the breakdown of the trust, it definitely is a still a smaller company's trust. Um, but there is no question that he is forced to sell something just because it gets larger. Okay. Now, you also recently spoke to another Bailey Gifford manager, James Anderson, who runs Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. And he also seems to be looking for um, entrepreneurial smaller companies, in particular unlisted ones. So is this a a bit of a house theme um, at Bailey Gifford and are the managers all following it? Yeah, well, this kind of search for disruptive companies is a bit of a house theme. And I guess it is quite a kind of... Um, a lot of people are talking about it all across the asset management industry, but Bailey Gifford have been following it very successfully for a while. Um, and I guess it's it's just this idea that you find companies which are going to be the real fast growing ones of the future and really shaking up major industries where there is not that much growth left. And the idea is that you can find these kind of disruptive stocks or unlisted companies all you know across different sectors. So people often think of things like Scottish Mortgage as a tech uh, fund, and Bailey Gifford would say, look, this isn't technology specific. This is just the fact that we're finding companies which have the ability to change industries. Stephen, what do you think about Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon investing in these kinds of smaller company? Well, just to clarify, Shin Nippon does actually mean New Japan in uh, in Japanese, I'm told, by Bailey Gifford. So um, that is uh, the name tells you exactly what it's going to do. Um, this is a good trust. This is another example where the closed-ended fund structure is uh, advantageous to investors. It allows Bailey Gifford to identify young up-and-coming companies invest in them for the long term free of worrying about flows in and out of the fund there is actually a similar open-ended fund run by leg mason shoizumi asset management which has very very good returns uh, has been stupendous in the last year or so Um, but this is open-ended and is subject to uh, investor sentiment waxing and waning i like this trust it is a house theme this technology theme big solutions to big problems is a is a is a catchy um, phrase that i hear used in bailey gifford around the around the world the uh, the other investment trust edinburgh worldwide does this on a global basis so this is just a small cap japan fund edinburgh worldwide kind of small cap global fund it's it's a really interesting fund it's performed amazingly um in the absence of any other kind of areas of growth within the Japanese market. Mm. Large caps have really struggled in, in recent times. Hence, uh, funds and managers that have focused on smaller companies, mid-sized companies such as Bailey Gifford, have done very, very well. Um, so there are risks, and we'll talk about those maybe in a second, but um, in for the long-term investor, this is a very, very interesting trust. Okay. Um, so, yeah, picking up on the risk, do you think that, um, you know, looking at these kind of small upstart companies that, you know, um, might do well, but might, um, I don't know, um, not survive, do you think that will increase the risk of Bailey Giffords and Nippon? 
risk is an interesting what is risk uh, that that you know those three words have spawned books and academic articles uh, you know around the world for many years betty gifford would argue that risk is not owning big large cap companies and just sitting on the benchmark risk to them is not owning companies that can grow exponentially and they show some quite interesting statistics uh, across their fund range, or some of their funds, Scottish Mortgage, Edinburgh Worldwide, where they show that their big winners, the funds that grow up 10, 20 times in price, such as Monetaro, such as M3, uh, stocks like that, the amount of money they make from those far outweighs the money they may lose from the, the riskier mm. things that fail. So that's what they're looking for. They're looking for asymmetry or asymmetric returns. They're looking for their big winners to far outweigh the losses from their losers. Okay, it's almost what private equity managers do. Is um, well, you, yeah, you talked about winners. Yeah. yeah, you talked about Scottish mortgage. Mm. This isn't about Scottish mortgage, but Scottish mm. mortgage are doing exactly that. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this on the day when Scottish mortgage's annual report and accounts mm. came out. Scottish mortgage is looking to put up to twenty five percent of their portfolio into unlisted, and they they're fully aware and they they're quite open about it. Some of their investments will fail. Mm. undoubtedly they do not have a monopoly on being right what they do think is they're buying reasonably developed but unlisted vehicle unlisted companies that haven't needed to come to the stock market for capital and hopefully when they do sell come to the market whatever then they'll make uh, big up uh, make big gains this is what they did with alibaba a number of years ago mm. Uh, talking of um, speculative um, elements of this trust, um, the manager, Pravin Kuma, only took over the running in December. Do you think it can emulate the strong returns of its previous manager, John McDougall? I think there's an important point here, and I think I mentioned this in my last um, uh, podcast that I did with you, that um, you have to kind of separate the, the manager's skill and the returns of the market. Small cap, mid cap growth in Japan over the last five or six years has been the area to be in. Every manager with that kind of investment style has done well. So John McDougall has gone off to do bigger things within Bailey Gifford. He's very, very highly regarded there. Praveen, I've met. Um, we will see if he uh, if he does a good job. If Japanese markets, Japanese equities are down 30%, he's not going down by probably less than 30%. That's not his fault. It's just a function of the asset class he's investing in. But you'd hope he'd outperform a bit. Um, Not in those markets. Yeah. You, the Bailey Gifford style mm. is that probably if the broad market over a year is down by X, they will be down probably by more than that figure. Okay. Um, that's just the way it is. That's not really a manager flaw. Mm. It's just the investment style they adopt. They're betting on the fact that when markets are going up, they will go up by more. A lot more. Okay. Okay, so uh, high-octane stuff. And uh, you can read Kate's full interview uh, with Pravin Kumar in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Now, over the last couple of calendar years, there's been a steady stream of new investment trust launches, most notably last year's whopping 800 million issue from Woodford Patient Capital Trust, which high-profile manager Neil Woodford runs. But so far in 2016, there haven't been any investment trust initial public offerings or IPOs for short. Um, this hasn't been the case since the first quarter of 2009, just after the financial crisis, when there were also no investment trust IPOs. But Stephen, we haven't just emerged from a crisis. So why have there been no investment trust IPOs this year? It's a really interesting question and one that's being asked uh, quite widely. Um, I think there was an interesting uh, or there was a relevant piece of work done looking at the open-ended fund world recently where it showed that this first quarter of 2016 has been a dreadful quarter for new fund flows coming into open-ended funds. 
So clearly what's happening is that there is massive investor uncertainty about the direction of markets, about interest rates. So is the US going to raise rates or cut them? Is China going to have a hard landing, soft landing? All these usual questions. And quite simply, investors have kept their wallets closed. They've sat on their hands and not invested in open-ended funds and in investment trusts. The investment trust community have made money. The, the kind of the investment trust brokers have made good money for themselves over the last couple of years from these new launches. There have been one or two, and we'll talk about one in a minute, that, um, that tried and failed. It's simply because they're not offering something that is sufficiently attractive to us as fund buyers to recommend to our clients. Okay, so it's a, a funds industry-wide problem, not just an investment trust thing. One issue which I will bring up that some other people mentioned was um, Brexit. I mean, you talked about general market uncertainty. Some people were specifically saying, well, they're waiting to see what the vote is if we stay in, if they go ahead, if we come out, who knows what's going to happen. Do you think it's um, you know, a big issue, um, and maybe as much as some of the others you mentioned, like US interest rates and, and, and wider uh, sort of global market issues? Uh, Brexit is definitely an issue. I think it's a broader and much more serious issue than just investment trusts uh, in terms of regulation mm. and the regulatory burden affecting the asset management industry and what they would and would not be able to sell to UK investors should we decide to leave the European Union. Um, uh, and I won't get more boring than that, but um, it, it is it is relevant. From an investment trust perspective, discounts are widening. Uh, markets always hate uncertainty. We had this last year with the election, the general election, where discounts in the UK trust widened going into May. And then when we mm. had the, the result, then they narrowed. Uh, that is again happening this year. Um, there's other factors. Uh, large caps are outperforming small caps this year. Um, but uh, with all of that, discounts are widening. I would not be surprised to see a discount narrowing across the sector post uh, June the 23rd. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned some, um, let's say, attempts. Yeah, there was at least one attempt to launch an investment trust um, a couple of months ago, uh, the Healthcare Royalty Trust. Now, this actually seemed rather attractive. It was, you know, offering potentially high yield and high returns. I mean, why did it fail to come? I would have thought investors would be piling into that kind of thing. There was definitely a sense of investor fatigue oh, it's yet another high income, low growth investment trust coming to us from a US manager trying to raise money in the UK listed funds market. It was a perfectly sensible and a perfectly attractive opportunity. My understanding is that one large investor said, we really like the idea, but we don't want to buy it in listed form. We don't want to buy an investment trust. We will give you the money and you can run money for us uh, on a segregated basis. And I think that touches on some relevant um, concerns that people should have about closed ended funds, which is that uh, liquidity can come and go. And the uh, because trusts can trade at discounts, mm. people don't necessarily want to buy something and then see sentiment change towards it, and then a discount widens from a premium to a discount, and then you know fifteen you've lost fifteen percent of your money, and nothing's actually happened. That's just market sentiment. I think that's a point. Plus, we you know we've had so much fundraisings in the last few years, be it wind farms or loans or you know uh, SME lending or infrastructure funds, all of these things, so many different things. People just went, do you know what? Don't really need this one. Yeah, which um, brings me on to my next point. Um, it's maybe on the surface surprising that there aren't many you know, or there aren't any IPOs. 
But actually, is it a bad thing? I mean, do we need more investment trusts? Um, well, I, I, in your article, there's a very interesting stat from Numis, which I wasn't aware of, which is essentially two thirds of investment trust launches since 2000 have failed. And there's you know, things to talk about that. But do we need new investment trusts? No. Do we need fewer of the ones that already exist? Yes, we do need consolidation. But what you want is you want capital recycling into better opportunities. Mm. What you don't want is further Me Too copycat launches coming in because somebody's just trying to jump on a bandwagon. You don't want them coming in charging investors exorbitant fees. You don't want them having boards and board directors who are um, just in it for the money and are maybe not the highest quality board directors that can provide the oversight and control on the management companies that really need and you want funds that are really doing something that offer us as fund buyers something we can't already get but again don't overcharge us because there is no investment trust has a divine right to a raise money and b exist once it has done Okay. And just turning to another point about IPOs, um, even when they do come, you mentioned, you know, the kind of the influence of some of these um, big asset managers, big investors. How easy is it generally for small private investors, such as Weed Investors Chronicle, to take part in an IPO if and when it comes and if, if and when they think it's um, suitable for them? It's possible. Um, it may be uh, interestingly, healthcare royalty trust did have a. Uh, they they teamed up with one of these fintech companies that was trying to make it easier mm. for private investors to invest in IPOs, which obviously that didn't go ahead. But it is possible. One can do it through just finding a copy of the prospectus, filling in the form on the back, sending your check off. You can do it through platforms and private client brokers. Obviously, I work for one, so you could do it through us if you wish. But. Uh, it's possible, but always take a step back and say, do I want this? Uh, is there a reason why it's being launched at the market now? Typically, uh, investment trust launches are quite cyclical. So mm. clearly you launch a fund when the asset class it is at its most attractive, most favourable. That's usually after all of the excellent performance has come mm. rather than before. So it. arguably when it's not attractive because they may be expensive. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. So you've got to be careful. You've got to understand the mm. difference between is this a, a long term growth story? Is this just an income play? And if so, what are you paying? You might be getting a 6% dividend yield, but if you're paying 1.5% in fees, question, can I get that level of income somewhere else for less? Okay, some really useful advice there. Thanks for that. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Stephen Peters, Investment Analyst at Charles Stanley, Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. You can read more on Frontier Markets, Bailey Gifford, Shin Nippon and Investment Trust IPOs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.